Welcome to the Beyond Mining podcast series. This podcast series was recorded from a number of talks, panel discussions and workshops held between the 22nd and 29th of November 2020 at the Beyond Mining Counter Conference. This counter conference was organised by Blockade iMark. Blockade iMark is made up of an alliance of organisations that has been protesting the International Mining and Resources Conference held annually in so-called Melbourne, Australia on unceded Wurundjeri and Boomerang country. You can find out more information about Blockade iMark and the Beyond Mining podcast series at blockadeimark.com. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy your podcast. Um, so, Carlos Zaria is um, the both the founder and uh, coordinator of Decoin, which is the defense and of ecology and conservation of the Intag network. Um, since which has been operating since 1995. Uh, Decoin has created 41 community controlled reserves, 37 community watershed reserves, delivered environmental education and developed a number of social enterprises. Decoin has helped establish the first ecological county in Latin America in September of 2000, creating a model of sustainable development for Latin America. In 2009, Decoin support, supported local residents to present a massive lawsuit against Copper Mesa Mining Corporation and the Toronto Stock Exchange for violence and human rights violations. And in 2020, it has won the first round of a landmark rights of nature case related to the proposed copper and molybdenum mine in Lurumagua. Um, we'll, we'll hand over to you now, Carlos, and um, have a little bit of a discussion about what led you to create Decoin um, and how you went about it. Yeah, well, again, thank you for doing this. Uh, it's really important to get the word out and get more nations and people behind supporting the rights of nature all over the world. Yeah, Decoin, it was an organic uh, creation. We had a problem here of a, a mining company hanging around some forest in the Hunin area, which is about 15 kilometers in a straight line as a parrot flies from where I am speaking right now. And no one knew anything about it. So we, we held a meeting here in my house between two groups and this issue came up. What should we do about this mining company? And then we proposed to create a new organization to confront the mining threat, but also really there are a lot of other problems, uh, deforestation, uncontrolled deforestation, mostly uncontrolled deforestation. But our focus has been stopping mining development during this past almost 26 years. So that was the impetus uh, to create the coin. And that's what we've been doing, uh, protecting a lot of forest. Like you said, uh, 41, I'm not sure if it's 41 or 38 community watershed and forest reserves that are protecting 12,000 hectares of primary secondary forest. A lot of these forests are on the boundary of one of the world's most biodiverse protected areas, 
the Cotacachicayapas National Park. And they're all, all of these forests are within the buffer zone of this really biodiverse area. And this is where thousands of Intag residents get their drinking water. So there is a need to protect these forests. That was our intention from the beginning. We need to get local communities directly involved in conservation. So as a consequence, this model of development that we turn over all the deeds to the communities and the local government, we don't own any forest at all. It doesn't work, uh, foundations or organizations owning forests in places like Ecuador. People have to have a stake, direct stake in conservation. So that's what we do. And that's one of the things we've done. We've also helped create, as you mentioned, sustainable uh, economic activities. The Shagrown Organic Coffee Project was born right here also. And we supported the community of Junin, which is the community in the, on the front lines of battling the transnational copper mines, mining companies. We helped them create an ecological tourism model development. They have their own cabin. We bought forests for them. And so, and we're also involved in environmental education with kids. So there's a lot that we've done and I don't want to take up too much time. So if anybody has questions later, I'll be glad to go into detail some of the work we do. Uh, thank you, Carlos. Um, and also, I, I need to um, back back up a little bit. I'm sorry, I, I forgot to acknowledge that um, I, I'm coming to you presenting from Nam, which is Wurundjeri land. And I, I need to acknowledge that that is where uh, this conference is, is mostly being coordinated out of, although it's very international and we have people coming in from all around the world. Um, and and Decoin has done so much work in the last uh, 25 years that it's it's very hard, I understand, to summarize all of that. Um, yeah. And it's you know been part of a broader movement and network in Ecuador. Um, and this has led up to um, the rights of nature being enshrined in Ecuador's constitution. I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit about what the atmosphere was or what the conditions were that led up to that um, constitutional enshrinement of the rights of nature. Yeah, that was actually a really interesting chapter in this uh, resistance. When they started writing the rewriting the constitution 2007, we were able to get uh, a few busloads of Intag residents to travel to Monte Cristi on the coast where there were these people that were elected to rewrite the constitution working. And we met with some of these uh, drafters of the constitution to let them know what we felt about conservation and specifically mining versus conservation. So we met, for example, with Alberto Acosta, which is the first time I met him. And he was one of the promoters of the rights of nature within the context of the rewriting of the constitution. And the people from Inta were, were able to sit and talk to people like Alberto Costa and directly uh, translate their concern about cons 
about what was going on with mining specifically, but in general conservation. We also went there as part of the of, of a broader organization called the Asamblea Nacional Ambiental, the National Environmental Assembly. So we were able to bring a lot of environmentalists to were to talk to the drafters of the new constitution and to make sure that the constitution had a strong environmental and conservation focus. And I think we were able to do that. And I was, uh, I was actually surprised that they went as far as enshrining the rights of nature. It was more than we expected, but we are really more than happy that it, it made it through because it was not easy. When we were there, there were lobbyists from the mining company and the petroleum company every single day while they were rewriting the constitution meeting with these uh, drafters. We were told that because there were people who were assistants to the drafters of the constitution who told us, and they say, you know, it's great you guys come, but you should stay. <laughs> you should stay here every day because the mining lobby, especially they mentioned the mining lobby, was especially active in the rewriting of the constitution. But at least we got the, uh, the that right enshrined, and it was uh, it's a whole different history now. Um, and obviously there's there's been a number of challenges with uh, interpreting that, that law, um, which we can go into a little bit later in more detail. But um, that same year, uh, Decoin was also involved in uh, a, a landmark case of going to Canada, um, a country that has a lot of mining companies that come into Ecuador um, and suing the stock exchange, which is an extraordinary, extraordinary <laughs> step. Uh, was that something that you were bolstered by the um, legal uh, developments in Ecuador to do, or was that happening on its own? Uh, what led you to do that? And what did you learn from that? Really, you really want to know? I, I was just really pissed at the mining company. <laughs> And I, and what do you, one of the things mining companies do to neutralize the, the opposition is to cut off funding. So I thought, why not use that philosophy against the mining company, try to cut off funding so they stop violating our rights. And I was in Canada. At that time I, I, I was under, I went there to do some research and I met with a team of lawyers and I was amazingly enough able to convince them to take on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And based on human rights violations, and our argument was that the company was getting money through the Toronto Stock Exchange and violating our rights. And we warned the Toronto Stock Exchange before the mining company was listed, which is something all environmentalists and activists should uh, keep an eye on. We warned the Toronto Stock Exchange, this company is violent and they will violate our rights. And sure enough, they did it. That's why the judge, the court in Canada accepted the lawsuit because the Toronto Stock Exchange was warned and they went ahead and made millions of dollars available to the company. They spent $40 million in Ecuador. Most of it 
here in Intak to try to neutralize the opposition. But they were never even able to access their mining concession. The community stopped them. The communities here in Intak are really organized and really focused. And they stopped them over and over again until it just got crazy. And they, they got really aggressive uh, with uh, judicial setups. I, I was set up. Uh, they almost, I almost ended up in jail. They hired paramilitaries to try and go into the, the mining concessions. They shot at civilians. They violated all kinds of rights, but nothing happened. And all this was uh, shown to the court, what the mining companies in, in Canada, especially, what they do with money when they are allowed to trade in stock exchanges. So it set a precedent in Canada. It was, it was the first one uh, for communities to sue the Toronto Stock Exchange. We lost because the lawyer said, look, the Canadian mining lobby is very strong here, but we may be able to set a precedent. And we lost the case, but the, but the company was kicked out of Toronto Stock Exchange, which meant they had no money. So we were successful in drying up their funding. So it was overall very, very positive. And um, much more recently, you've been involved in another precedent court case with Lurumagua. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that court case is and um, what the outcome means. Right. Yeah. It, it's difficult for me to see these things out of context because the latest lawsuit has actually been over a year in the making. We've been studying the just the, the best timing to, to present the case, talking with allies and so on. It took a long time to prepare a case. And it's, it's one of dozens of measures that we have used to try and stop mining development in this really beautiful biodiverse area of the Northwest Ecuador. So this specific case, the Yurimawa is the name of the mining concession and it belongs to the state mining, the Ecuador State Mining Company, ENAMI, and is being operated by Codelco, the world's largest copper producer, which is based in Chile. Very, very powerful mining company. So, we are always looking for arguments, strong arguments, to present to the public and the court as to why there should be no mining here. And we knew there were endangered species in there, but I thought that maybe we had a good chance of finding new species if we could somehow finance an environmental inventory, uh, biological inventory. So I, I got a little bit of money from Rainforest Concern in the UK. And I hired this, uh, Decoin hired this foundation in Quito called Hambatu. They specialize in amphibians. Why amphibians? I thought if we were to find a new species, it was, would probably be amphibians. Ecuador has incredible diversity and amount of amphibians, especially frogs. And it was just unbelievable. But the first night they were there, they found, they rediscovered a species that was considered extinct. And that's called the long-nosed harlequin frog. 
the first night that we're there. That was in 2016. And then uh, three years later, as a consequence of the, the rediscovery, they found another even rarer amphibian called the Confusing Rocket Frog, Ectopoglossus confusus. And it's uh, the biologist who found it said it's like, imagine walking into a lost valley and running into a dinosaur. It's, it's that rare. So once the scientific studies are published, it's going to make a lot of waves. This is a really, really ancient lineage of amphibian. It's going to create a lot of a lot of waves. So we know with these two discoveries, we thought, well, now the time is right to present the lawsuit. And also the fact that the courts are more independent now than they were with the last government. There was no independence of power with the Correa government. So everyone said it would be a waste of time presenting lawsuits during this period. So we, we decided this was the time to present the lawsuits in, uh, using the rights of nature. One of our, our main argument is that the, the continuation of mining exploration, there is no ex exploitation yet, there's just exploration. We argue that if exploration is allowed to continue, it will definitely inevitably lead to the extinction of these two species of frogs and others that are critically endangered. I mean, we're talking one of the most biodiverse places in the world and there are dozens of endangered animal species within this 5,000 hectare mining concession. So that's what we asked. We were able to convince the judge, a woman judge, unbelievable. This is the first time it's ever happened in her province. And one of the very few times the rights of nature case has, has been successful. The judge agreed with us and said that sure enough, these species have a right to exist, even though humans may not really care about it. And he, the, the, the judge gave a time limit to the mining company and they have to show not only to the government, but to the local government, to universities and the public ombudsman that the measures that they're going to implement can secure the livelihood and the persistence of these, these species, which would be very, very difficult for them to prove that. So we won, the government will appeal. I am sure we're going to win in the appeal because it's actually harder to win on the lower courts because the judges are much more likely to be pressured by the mining companies and the government. Because the government is a, it's a very active participant in this lawsuit. We sued the, we sued the uh, Ministry of the Environment and the, the Attorney General's office. So the government has a lot of interest in this mining project to go ahead. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on the judges. And usually it's the lower court judges that are more uh, susceptible to these pressures. So we're really, really, really lucky and very, very happy that we won at the lower courts. It's um, it's so exciting and is such a precedent um, and we'll hopefully see that beautiful and richly biodiverse area that you've been fighting to protect for so long 
protected from mining threats into the future. Um, and I just I want to thank you so much for all of the work that you have done through Decoin and um, independently as well to to protect such a precious place. Um, so the the court they have until around Christmas, I think he said, um, to present their appeal arguments if they have any. Is that right? Yeah, here in Ecuador, it really is completely up to the judge to continue the procedures. I'm hoping that by Christmas, the, the government, the judge will, will let the procedure go ahead. And by the beginning of the year will be, that's what our, our lawyers are saying, but the beginning of 2021, we should be at the appeal at the, the superior court of our province. So we're, we will be counting on support from everyone that's plugged in now to try and get this case to be better known and to try and get a more positive ruling. And by the way, it's not only the coin, there's a lot of people and organizations that you could probably imagine. It's not only me or the coin, there's been a lot of people, especially the community at the community level. Uh, I mean, imagine persisting 26 years against, it's now four mining companies. We kicked out two mining companies, the Japanese in the 90s, the Canadians in 2009. And now we're, we're uh, confronting uh, two national mining companies. So it's an amazing amount of work and persistent by the people underground and, orga and allied organizations here in Ningtang, but all over the world. Uh, thank you so much, Carlos. Um, we will have to continue with our other panelists, members, and then um, people can write questions they have um, about how to, to help know more about the case or um, any other questions they might have in the chat and we'll come back to them. Um, but um, thank you so much. And yeah, really appreciate all the work that you've done in, in this space. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and our, our next presenter is um, Liz Downs, who has written the most modest bio I've ever seen <laughs> and is the um, director of the Rainforest Information Centre um, and a campaigner for the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group and has, has titled herself full-time random activist with a background and skill set of international grassroots project work. Um, especially around Latin America, uh, writing, environmental campaigning, deep ecology and guerrilla gardening, and currently living in Luricha, Tasmania. Welcome and thank you for joining us, Liz. Cool. Um, yeah, so, I mean, briefly, the Rainforest Information Centre um, is a grassroots organisation that started with um, John Seed, who's quite well known nowadays. Um, uh, with the first, the success of the first, Australia's first rainforest blockade in 1979 in Terrania Creek in Northern New South Wales. And they've been pretty much um, supporting frontline struggles, mainly around, you know, providing funding and volunteers at a very, you know, low key sort of level. Um, and in Ecuador, oh yeah, and, and the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group was one of many rainforest action groups around the country and the world for um, RIC or the Rainforest Information Centre and 
we did a kind of fundraiser for Los Cedros in 2018 and in Melbourne and resurrected ourselves <laughs> um, to take on the Ecuador mining uh, campaign, which we're currently heavily involved in. So um, yeah, rainforest information centers. I wanted to just bring in the Ecuador link because um, we, um, started in Ecuador with helping helping the local communities establish the Los Cedros Biological Reserve in 1989. Um, brought a few volunteers over, raised some money, um, helped the locals start a, a management committee, quickly branched out into other projects around Ecuador, mainly around working with different indigenous groups around establishing a form of um, territorial boundaries actually so they could protect their lands better from oil and <laughs> and other extractive industries so yeah and so more recently um there's obviously the the case and involvement around the los cedros biological desert reserve um has really picked up um maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that reserve is uh the Rainforest Information Centre's connection to it and um, what's happening or how the court case has come about. Okay, I'll give a bit of um, context here. Um, I'll bring MRAG in a little bit more. Um, so in 2017, um, I was actually in Ecuador at the time, um, working mainly in the Amazon area, but um, came, you know, got a, an email to the network saying, oh my God, we found out that um, about 2 million hectares of forests, like biodiverse forests and indigenous lands in Ecuador have been concessioned over to international mining companies. Um, that, of course, includes the area that Carlos um, was talking about. So we've been working with Carlos as well on these same issues. Um, we found out that, uh, well, the biggest investment um, in monetary terms is actually Australian. And we have um, about seven or eight different Australian mining companies, some of them, you know, BHP, Twiggy Forest, Gina Reinhardt, they've all been completely um, ransacking mainly um, Aboriginal lands here. So yeah, they're going over to Ecuador and basically plundering Ecuador now. And so it's, it's a really big issue. It's not just Los Cedros, it's, it's the whole shebang. Los Cedros is um, under concession to mainly to a Canadian company called Cornerstone um, Capital Resources, um, co-owned by the Ecuadorian State Mining Company. Uh, BHP has a corner of it as well. So anyway, we were like, okay, where do we even start? <laughs> um, there's nobody else currently, I guess internationally, I mean, apart from working with, with individual groups, um, you know, taking on this whole thing as a whole and, and really getting this entire um, picture like out to the world that we've, we've got this massive problem with, with, um, with extractivism that's, that's burgeoning in Ecuador. Um, mainly because Ecuador's copper reserves uh, are, are greenfields, they're virgin. Um, people have just, companies have only just discovered that these copper is, all this copper is there. Um, anyway, so Los Cedros um, 
Rick already had an investment there. So we just thought, well, we can at least start with Los Cedros. Um, we can start developing a campaign around that. Um, Melbourne Rainforest Action Group came on board. We've basically been working both in mainly in the wider mining space, um, writing a lot of reports on the Australian mining companies, just trying to kick the issue out there. Um, trying to support the locals with funding, if we can raise it. Uh, Los Cedros exploded this year because the Constitutional Court... Um, okay, so Los Cedros won at the, a case at the provincial level last year. It was an action for protection to kick the mining companies out. Um, they'd already started exploring by that point. Um, how uh, Unfortunately, the mining companies ignored that action for protection and said it was illegitimate and we're going to, you know, explore anyway and, you know, stuff for you guys, basically. So the next thing that happened was the Constitutional Court um, decided to um, hear the case as a precedent case for applying the rights of nature to protecting uh, forests that are technically, this is about 2 million hectares we're talking about. They're technically protect, protected under secondary laws in Ecuador. However, um, under the mining um, push, uh, the mining lobby, the national mining plan, um, those environmental laws have been weakened and eroded to the point of almost no return. Also, we're talking about not only environmental laws, but laws protecting um, free, prior and informed consent of communities, human rights, that kind of thing, have all been eroded. So we, um, the Constitutional Court wants to get the right, you know, to see if they can use the rights of nature to help override some of these lower laws with, um, it's very difficult to get rights of nature um, the problem with the rights of nature in Ecuador, as um, Carlos will testify as well, is that it is, has been very, very difficult to um, win cases. It's been very difficult for judges and um, to know what the rights of nature even is or means. Um, there's virtually no legislation that um, bridges the gap between these really great constitutional laws um, and, you know, actually protecting environments and people on the ground. So anyway, so that's the kind of what we're embroiled in now with Los Cerdos. Do you want me to go on about where we're at with the case now? I'm just rambling on now. You're mute. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so the, the case is imminently um, happening. Uh, the there, the, all of the submissions were received, is it two weeks ago now? Yeah, two weeks ago. Um, so the public hearing was about a month ago. We had, uh, there were about 76 amicus curiae's presented from all over the world, got biologists very excited, got um, you know, scientists of all kinds, got um, local people who, um, uh, the thing about Los Cedros is, like all of these areas, uh, it's a source of drinking water for hundreds of communities. Um, there's there's a lot of community investment in protecting these areas. So they, they were presenting um, briefs we had. Yeah, so, um, uh, and then, yeah. So we're now waiting for a ruling and this ruling, 
it's very much on tenterhooks because at the hearing, the mining companies, um, and you heard Carlos talk about how, <laughs> how um, stubborn they are in presenting their arguments. What the mining companies mainly argued was rights for investors, investment rights, and uh, what's known as juridical security. Basically, in plain English, this means that the mining companies were threatening to sue Ecuador if, if the state doesn't try and protect their investments. And this has happened before in Ecuador. Um, Chevron famously sued the, the state a couple of years ago um, and won, um, based on, and basically got out of cleaning up a horrific um, toxic waste oil contamination situation in the Amazon area so it, it can happen once it could happen again um so they were arguing that and the the defense was arguing that rights of nature being constitutional should override um, investment security because they um these rights are inalien inalienable um we've had uh, we're working with a UK barrister who's actually from Indigenous Peruvian um, descent, and she's been passionately arguing um, the case on the basis that Ecuador not only has constitutional laws, but these constitutional laws are tied to international treaties, um, environmental treaties, human rights treaties, the Paris Agreement, um, UNESCO's um, uh, Na National and Cultural Heritage, 1992, um, all kinds of treaties. And, and so they, they've got no argument. This is what the defense is saying to, to, to put, try and put investment rights first. And this is why it's kind of a landmark case because it's, this is talking about a big picture way to try and, you know, we, we can either have grassroots communities struggling on for you know fighting case by case and and you know struggling to raise the 20 or 30 or 50 thousand dollars needed to pay the lawyers to get these cases to court over and over and over again or we can try and also um change you know work out how to use the system to afford more protections of these areas so that's where we're at at the moment <laughs> So this is quite significant, definitely in Ecuador, but also globally. So um, we will speak with, um, we'll be passing over to Michelle Maloney to speak a bit more about um, the rights of nature movement in Australia and, and some of those uh, progressions. But for now, for people who are tuning in, what would you say for the best ways to support this really important case? Okay, um, I, I did have slides, but just... It fries my brain too much to try and look for them and talk at the same time um unless i put them in the chat when i've stopped talking maybe so yeah at the um publicity is a really big thing and it's not just it's raising awareness we've um i mean the case that carlos spoke about before is 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 quite close to los cedros and in some ways it's actually it, it's certainly equally as important if not more um, in terms of, you know, using a slightly different legal structure, um, you know, focusing on endangered, both Los Cedros and the Uramagua case um, have focused on um, the rights of particular critically endangered endemic species. Um, so getting the, you know, um, we, we share a lot on Facebook, we, we, we're trying to use social media, we, we, we lack 
um, people power uh, because um, the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group, again, full disclosure, consists of currently five and a half volunteers <laughs> um, who work really, really hard for nothing. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, we have a diverse skill set, but sometimes we're just like, oh, you know, we're not, and there's no, none of us here really, really know how to use Twitter properly. And so I'll put, I'll put a few links on the chat. Um, just, you know, for, for people to just hop on and share stuff, it's really important. Um, uh, Twitterthon is all about getting the Justicia Los Cedros hashtag up trending in Ecuador, because Ecuadorians, you know, they, they, they're fighting a huge battle, massive battle. They're, they're, we've got these uh, a total of 3 million hectares just about um, undermining concession. That's not just forests um, and indigenous lands it also includes quite heavily populated areas water source areas people are um, pe pe before covid people were rioting um last year against the government for, uh, about this issue amongst other things it's a huge political issue um, we've got australian companies involved in it go to our website read our re releases just just yeah it's like um we just need to get it we're also still trying to raise money um, I hesitate to ask activists for money, but um, the issue is that we don't just have the legal fees to pay, which are considerable. Um, all of these cases are ridiculously expensive. Uh, we also need money to help support the reserve and, and the local communities around afterwards. Um, that's the employment of local communities as park guides, et cetera. That's helping the local communities um, develop their own um, ecological um, uh, economies because uh, the mining companies are right through that area and they're, they're dividing and conquering and offering jobs that don't exist and splitting you know, people off again, you know, doing the usual things that mining companies do. They're doing a great job, the mining companies, so we need to counter that. Um, to do that, we need uh, funds. So I'll put a link to that in case anyone feels cashed up right now. Apart from that, yeah. Um, we're just waiting for a ruling. Um, it's not going to be the end of the story. If, if there's a loss, it'll be still a precedent. We're just going to have to keep fighting on other, <laughs> keep supporting these groups to keep getting cases up, basically. Yeah, and Carlos has been putting, well, if, yeah, um, uh, the Intag Rights of Nature case is, is a really important precedent as well to, to be aware of, so. So, um, so both of these cases will be um, having quite large developments around Christmas. Um, so keep watching that space and um, provide any support you can um, to and, and stay tuned to, to hearing what's happening in that space. Thank you so much, Liz. Um, we will now be crossing over to Michelle Maloney. Dr. Michelle Maloney is the co-founder and national convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, uh, also adjunct senior fellow with Law Futures Centre Griffith University, director of the New Economy Network Australia uh, and Future Dreaming Australia. Uh, she advocates for system change in order to shift industrialised societies from a human-centred to an earth-centred governance system. Um, thank you so much and I'll hand over to you and then we'll be going to some questions in about 20 minutes. So feel free to start putting more in through the chat if you'd like people. Thank Thanks you so much. 
Thank you for the invitation to join you. And um, as um, Carlos said, absolutely power to you guys for organizing a Beyond Mining conference. So important to challenge extractivism. Um, so I would like to, I had a couple of questions put to me and I thought if it was okay with you guys, um, I'd put them in the context of a short presentation. Um, some key questions were, well, what is earth jurisprudence and how does it connect to rights of nature? What's happening in Australia? And what are some of the challenges and opportunities um, that we're looking at in the rights of nature movement more centrally? So um, sorry that I'm the only one showing slides, but I'm actually really visual and I, um, I find some of the images speed up the explanation of some uh, concepts that can be quite complex. First, I'd like to acknowledge country. Uh, I live in beautiful Brisbane, in North Brisbane, which is the traditional lands of the Turrbal people. Uh, the Brisbane region is always acknowledged as the Yagara and Turrbal people's land. Uh, I always like to acknowledge the elders, past, present and future, who cared for millennia for this beautiful part of the world and for the entire continent. In my work, I also like to acknowledge um, the ongoing impacts and legacy of colonization and acknowledge my role as a descendant of um, the people who stole land, the Irish, the English and others, and my daily commitment to being part of the decolonizing uh, process in the work that we do in Australia, in our humble contribution. It's very, very important to me personally. Um, one of the questions was, when did I first come across Rights of Nature? Um, I met and fell in love with Earth Jurisprudence and Rights of Nature in 2009 at a wonderful conference hosted by Professor Peter Burden, now professor, then PhD student. And it was in fact that conference where I it was introduced to Earth Jurisprudence, Rights of Nature, and fundamentally, um, you know, life-changing, ground-changing concepts for Western law that drove us to create the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. We are deeply committed and interested in how we change the systems of Western industrialized societies so that we can be Earth-centered, so that we care for each other and all of um, the, the creatures and Earthlings on this beautiful planet. To us, rights of nature is one of the many possible ways to stimulate systems change. And in a moment, I'll talk about some of the ways that it can be used as a spearhead concept and a practical tool. But in Australia, we have the particular cultural context of a colonized land. Uh, if you're introducing rights of nature in Europe, you've got your own challenges. If you're looking at rights of nature concepts in Australia, you've got a very particular cultural context. And I'll talk about it a bit in a minute because it's actually very, very important for the rights of nature movement um, in Australia and globally to be aware of what it's trying to change and what's appropriate for the place. So firstly, what is earth jurisprudence? Jurisprudence is a big flash word for a theory. So um, if you've got a feminist jurisprudence, you've got a theory of law uh, that looks at the legal system from a feminist point of view. You'll look at certain decisions by male judges and critique it as a feminist. If you've got a Marxist jurisprudence uh, approach, you'll be looking at things in terms of material uh, impacts of capitalism and workers' rights and such. So earth jurisprudence, and I'll talk a bit about it in a minute, is really just a theory of law or a theory of governance that takes the whole thing from the perspective of the living world. And when you apply this earth jurisprudence to modern Western law, you get a profoundly different worldview. Um, and it's actually really important to unpicking some of the systems in Australia is to actually understand little bits about um, what it is we're tackling and what it is we're trying to do in its place. In a nutshell, earth jurisprudence is all about shifting industrialized societies from a human-centered and human hierarchically privileged 
uh, position, the image on the left, towards a, a deep understanding of the true story of life on Earth, which is billions of years of evolution, and the fact that we are merely one of many members of the Earth community. Now, to many of us on this call, that sounds like complete common sense, but when you look at what um, Western legal systems, Western economic systems, and the rise over the many hundreds of years since feudal times of European views on law, hierarchies and such, um, you couldn't get a more different uh, juxtaposition of ideas. Just a quick reminder, the term Earth jurisprudence was actually coined by a wonderful uh, older gentleman, now passed away, Thomas Berry, renowned for being a great thinker, deep ecologist. He's written many books, but in 1999, this book, The Great Work, actually brought deep ecology into a critique of the governance systems that drive our current Western system or industrialized system. He looked at all four, what he called the four fundamental establishments that control human affairs, law and government, economics, education and religion. And he said that they are all fundamentally anthropocentric or human centered. And again, we can brush that over and go, yes, of course it is. But if you actually think very deeply what a system looks like, the current legal system that demolishes the living world without a second glance is the natural progression of deep anthropocentrism. If you think it's all for us, we can rearrange the landscape as if it were furniture. If you actually look upon plants and animals as relatives and beloved friends, evolutionary companions, you wouldn't allow the kinds of destruction that we see from mining, logging, extractivism, pointless residential development, the use uh, and extraction of oils and petroleums, and the vast mega waste of plastics that we're now seeing launched into our beautiful oceans. So at its most basic, Earth Laws is about exploring and challenging the ideas that lie beneath Western industrialized society. And I stress Western industrialized society because in a moment, I really wanna remind us, any of us who are from uh, the settler folks in Australia, what we're doing to address rights of nature issues still has to be taken in the context of colonization. It's actually very important that we understand some of these implications. From a Western legal point of view, rights of nature laws are profoundly just about changing the legal status of nature from being human property to being recognized as rights bearing entities. Now that's the legal aspect. The rights of nature movement is broader. Often it's about people talking about social and ecological justice, but at its most basic, many of the legal aspects are about changing the legal status. Um, and what someone asked in the questions, are there other precedents for rights of nature laws? It's one of the most rapidly moving and developing legal movements uh, in the 21st century. Uh, I won't go through any of these, but there is a lot more going on than many people understand. Um, everything from laws in Bangladesh, Uganda, emerging developments in Bavaria, in Germany, uh, people looking at the Pacific Ocean, tons of stuff happening. And I'm not going to talk too much to this slide, but just a reminder from the Western legal point of view, all of nature is just a commodity. I know that we all know this, but it's really important when we're challenging um, the commodification of nature in the West to realize that First Peoples and First Nations peoples don't have that view. And if we're going to start to develop better laws in Australia, we need to acknowledge that their legal system is very different and we don't have to impose rights of nature laws onto first laws. Although this is a very speedy overview of stuff and in a minute I'm going to introduce what's going on in Australia. I just wanted for anyone who's listening who really doesn't know what's going on in the rights of nature movement. It's probably very helpful to think of rights of nature as a core concept that has recently branched into two big branches from the same tree. Um, 
in terms of legal aspects and legal application. On the one hand, you have what we call rights of nature across a jurisdiction. We see that in the Constitution of Ecuador, uh, the laws that I understand haven't been implemented very strongly in Bolivia, new laws in Uganda, the local laws that started it all in the US in the early 2000s. Um, but what we've also seen since the New Zealand developments, and many people think about this, is a different approach altogether to rearranging the legal status of nature. The simplest way to think about it is ecosystem specific. And I'll come back in a moment to what's been going on in New Zealand because it has, and I've been working on this stuff for more than 10 years, and we saw after the New Zealand Whanganui River was recognized, a profound shift in a lot of uh, Australian way of thinking about the potential of rights of nature. But I guess I just wanna stress, rights of nature is often um, a term used very generally, but it's not always the term that's relevant, particularly to ecosystem specific laws. Um, many interviews and articles with folks from the Whanganui River, they do not see their laws as rights of nature laws. They see them as first and foremost, first laws, bringing custodial responsibility for uh, the Maori people back to their place. So what's going on in Australia? And the question to ask is, what are rights of nature laws in this place? Are they relevant to Australia or should we be paying attention to Aboriginal people's first laws? Or is there a big mix up and there's cultural legal pluralism on work, at work here? So from the Australian Earth Laws point of view from um, AILA, we recognise the legacy of colonialism and imperialism. We must act to address it. And some people are arguing, there are articles both internationally and in Australia, that rights of nature can in fact be used as just another form of colonisation. So the thing to remember is that our beautiful continent, our lovely society with its straight lines, our laws that we bring in at certain levels, whether they talk about rights of nature or not, are still fundamentally from a Western construct. And in fact, the Aboriginal people's first laws, which have been around since time immemorial, are still in place. And if we impose a rights of nature law across a jurisdiction, where does that put Aboriginal peoples and their legal system? So a couple of perspectives. I'm not gonna tell anyone the right way. There's lots of different ways to think about this. Um, just a couple of things. Um, many years ago now, the Northern Murray-Darling Basin um, Aboriginal First Nations Federation included uh, a pledge to uphold the rights of Mother Earth in their, um, their constitution and their document frames rights of nature the same way many folks around the world do. Recently, uh, the Yarra River Protection Act was passed. Um, it is not a rights of nature law. A lot of people think it is. It's a profoundly important piece of legislation in Australia. It's the first law that does two things, I guess, recognises an entire river as a living being and recognises the profound connection and custodial responsibility of the First Nations peoples. And its creation of the Birrarung Council um, is a very important development. However, the Crown still has fundamental ownership of the river and the river system, et cetera. But this is a very, very important first step um, for many uh, issues around recognition. And I think a lot of groups are gonna build off it. Just with the short amount of time available, wanted to refer anyone who's interested to look up recent articles by Virginia Marshall and Anne Polina and older stuff by Irene Watson. These are all incredible um, Aboriginal First Nations uh, people, women, academics and activists, writers. Virginia Marshall's perspective is that rights of nature is coming from a flawed place and that it can in fact be used by Westerners to simply roll the rights of nature over the top of 
both the rights of First Nations peoples and the custodial obligations of First Nations peoples. And Polina um, has recently written an article with Erin O'Donnell and I think Alessandro Palazon about maybe what we should be looking at are the rights of ancestral beings. And this is a gentler way of looking at a rights of nature approach in Australia. And people like Irene Watson are quite adamant that we already have a legal system in Australia. It predates 1788 and we don't need any of these other laws. So where does that leave us? There's still a lot of potential, and this is kind of answering, answering the question around challenges and opportunities. Last year, Diane Evers, who's a wonderful Greens MP in WA, wanted to introduce a rights of nature bill. Um, so we worked with her, and in one way, it's not a perfect thing because it is in fact the, an explanation of a bill at a state level to overlay um, other laws to recognize the rights of nature, but it has special provisions recognizing first peoples uh, privileged and priority position in the space, but it's not perfect. But it was the first time in Australia that anything to do with rights of nature was discussed in a parliament, recognised in Hansard. It's a really great start and stimulated surprisingly positive conversations amongst non-Indigenous people. Earlier this year, the Blue Mountains Council um, resolved, um, this was after a lot of work that Ayla was doing with local people, exploring what rights of nature could look like or could mean in the Blue Mountains. Ultimately, the mayor picked up the concept um, and the Blue Mountains Council itself is the first council in Australia to explicitly say it's going to look at what it might mean to um, incorporate rights of nature into its practices and operations. This is very, very interesting for Australia um, and I'm waiting on the next stage of, of their own explorations. Um, only a couple of months ago, my organisation, the Australian Earth Laws Alliance, launched a very, what, a very important report, not because we wrote it, but 230 pages of First Nations and local community people living along the poor old Barker Darling River, which has been slowly killed for many decades. One of the recommendations in it is that um, all the river communities work together with um, First Nations leadership to try to find a way to articulate the rights of the river to live and be a river um, in the face of terrible irrigation and over-extraction, floodplain harvesting, water theft and political corruption. So this is a very important space and there's a lot of work will be happening in 2021. And if anyone's interested in supporting a really, a really deeply grounded and First Nations led process in exploring rights of nature potential in Australia, please do get in touch because this will be a very interesting space next year. The other thing I wanted to mention is that um, my work with um, Mary Graham, who if anyone knows her, she's an incredible Indigenous elder, um, one of Australia's leading thinkers, philosophers and political scientists. If you don't know of her, please Google her and try to find um, any YouTube of Mary talking about First Nations uh, governance. Um, she will educate you in a way that she blew my hair back and continues to do so. We, um, Mary, myself, some other Indigenous and non-Indigenous partners have created this organisation to explore ecological knowledge and first laws and how um, we can use them to transform the Australian system completely. Challenges and opportunities, again, I would stress local, local, local. Absolutely support our international cousins and get involved with Liz and the others. But if you really want to engage in rights of nature ideas in Australia, um, start thinking about what it looks like if we follow uh, First Nations leadership, if we understand their governance structures and support them, um, have a look at the Birrarung Council and how it works, and please get in touch with us. If you've got any interest in this, Ayla is 100% volunteers. We're all very um, passionate about changing the system to care for the continent, and there's a number of emails there that I can also put in the chat. 
there are profound opportunities in this country to engage in any conversation that challenges the pro-growth uh, and neoclassical economic mode that is destroying and land, uh, everything from land clearing to allowing coal mines to continually treating plants and animals with disgusting disrespect. Um, if you'd like to be involved in a multidisciplinary approach to any of that, get in touch with us. And if you're looking to get in touch with anyone else, if we can help you, we definitely will. That's me. I hope I haven't gone over time, but that's just a speedy overview of some really big and important things to think about. Um, and that is a blue-banded bee. It lives in my garden, and I always like to begin and end with country. It is my deep and passionate love of the creatures, big and small, um, that helps me as a dumb old lawyer keep focused on the work in spite of the terrible things that are going on. So enjoy my blue banded bee and I'll stop talking. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. Um, I, we will go into a bit more of a discussion. I did just want to quickly share um, a, a video that has come through, if I can get it to work, um, that is from um, related to um, the rights of nature movement. It's a one minute video, um, bear with me and then we'll have a bit more of a discussion about the rights of nature as a whole, thank you. The rights of nature movement has grown very fast, especially since Ecuador was able to introduce in its constitution the guarantee of the rights of nature. But I really like the relationship with the abolitionist movement because the abolitionist movement was thinking and pushing towards a recognition that slaves have rights, that slaves are people. Of course they are people, that slaves cannot be treated as an object, they need to be treated as a person. And we are treating nature as an object. We, with environmental legislation, are only telling uh, how many times can you keep your slave? So how many times, how much can you contaminate or pollute a river with mercury? You're just putting the labels of how much to contaminate, how much to hit your slave. And with the Rise of Nature movement, what we're trying is to liberate nature and consider it that it's not a, an object, that it's a subject of rights, and that we need to completely change our relationship with nature. I just wanted to share that one minute clip, um, drawing the connection between the rights of nature and the abolition movement, which um, I think is really interesting and um, there's two, two arms that I, I see really with the um, discussion around the rights of nature in the Western legal context. Um, and those two arms are, well, pushes, I guess, are for the rights of nature and also for the stop ecocide movement, which are, are very linked. Um, so these two movements are, I think, very important for people to be aware of. Thank you so much for discussing um, the uh, issues or touching on some of the issues with um, assuming that the Western legal um, construct is the way for this development to occur. It is, there's obviously um, the, the rights of nature as a concept is, is not a new concept that the West has invented at all. And in fact, um, when we were speaking with um, Monica Ferriatinta, the um, Peruvian uh, lawyer that Liz mentioned before, she, you know, I did ask her if she thought the rights of nature were inevitable and she, an in inevitable progression. And she, um, she laughed and said that, well, it's not really progress. It's really about remembering what indigenous people already knew. And, 
finding a way to link that into the the dominant system at the moment. Um, I, I wondered what your thoughts were, Michelle, on the idea that, um, you know, are the rights of nature inevitable? Well, that's a great question. And firstly, yes, they're not new. It's just that the Western world has never, ever seen the living world in the last many hundreds of years as anything much other than human property. Um, do I think that some shift towards an Earth-centred uh, worldview and way of being is inevitable? I would like to think so. I think it's, I would like to think if humanity survives the oncoming changes and climate change that we will look back on the fossil fuel age the way we looked back on the bronze age and the, you know, the, the stone age as a, as a period of time where certain things happened. In, in the whole history of humanity, many people would argue that this current time in the West of seeing the living world as property and seeing humanity as superior to all things is actually an anomaly. It's unusual, you know, throughout the rest of time, throughout the rest of culture, many other people did see nature in a different perspective. Um, I personally, as an Aussie, am completely convinced that Aboriginal peoples had it right. I think um, they were never obsessed about rights. That was always about obligation. Mary Graham talks about the relationist ethos. The land creates us. We have to care for it. It cares for us. Caring for country and caring for kin is, is in their DNA, but it's also in their culture. You know, Mary Graham talks about how from an early age, children were taught empathy. They were taught how things fitted together um, and they were greed or any other aspects that were unpleasant and not pragmatic that would cause um, harm to the communities was looked down upon and discouraged. So I think returning to some deeper respect for the living world, for moral, for moral reasons, for practical reasons, and for the sheer love of our plants and animals. Surely um, the crisis at the moment is showing people it's the only way forward. So that's my answer. That's great. Um, I I'd love to throw that question um, to both Liz and Carlos as well of, of what your thoughts are and whether you think that the rights of nature is an inevitable um, part of our future. I think so. I would like to think so. I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of pushback from corporations, from that other world. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. It's, it's already starting. And here's something that I think in developing countries may, it, it, they're already uh, working out the blueprint. And a lot of it has to do, and I think Michelle, you, you, you hit it, you had it right. It has to do with a lot of uh, community, local relation to the nature. And one of, that's, one, that's one of the things we focus on is uh, education. We, we need to really re-educate the people so they look at nature differently. Because if people on the ground don't realize it they don't if they don't really understand why these things matter why it's important for all of us for to respect nature to look to change that perspective if people on the ground don't understand that it doesn't matter how many laws you pass or how many constitutional uh, measures you put in place if people underground don't understand that, all these conservation uh, 
measures will fail. So the rights of nature is slowly coming into the, it's slowly changing the paradigm. It's very difficult. It's a, we have to be honest about it. It's gonna take a lot of work. It's gonna take decades, I think. But every victory like ours and hopefully like, like Los Cedros will soon be, is one step towards that inevitable future, but it may be far in the future. And Liz, did you ha have something you wanted to share on that as well? What were your thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, to me, echoing the thoughts of Michelle and Carlos, I mean, to me, um, rights of nature is very much well. I mean, whatever we call, I think the the whole thing that we call maybe Earth systems, jurisprudence, not just the rights of nature, but this this movement uh, is inseparable from um, from social justice, from climate justice, and from indigenous sovereignty. Um, looking at, you know, basically the, um, the ways of being of um, First Nations peoples around the world having um, it being seen in, in a rightful place as having precedence over the Western systems that have caused all our destructions. Um, I guess um, there's, there's kind of an urgency in there and, and, and that's a tricky one because I, I listened through the um, decolonization discussion yesterday on this IMARC conference and talking about how you know, environmental organizations in particular are going, oh my God, we've got a climate and ecological emergency, we've got to act now. And 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 then and in doing so, um, rushing and forgetting to to really stitch it all together and look at the justice issues and the issues of colonization. Um, so to me, it's all completely interwoven. It's a decolonization process, it's one expression of a really complex decolonization process. It needs to happen at all systems everywhere worldwide and at the same time locally place-based but you know in every local place and, and that we're all doing different yeah we're all doing different really but it's mainly focused on ecuador and australia really interesting sorry so just check um ask people to just check that they're muted um just some other audio was coming through then um so um perhaps i'll just ask you all briefly um if you would mind finishing up with um, some comments about the ways that you think people can um, best support this movement as a whole um michelle if you wouldn't mind starting off that would be great sure um firstly i agree you know completely with liz and carlos um the los cedros uh hearing case uh, and all of the work with that please do get in touch with Liz and support them and the work that they're doing it's really really important I think in Australia um, there, there's already so many excellent organizations out there doing terrific stuff maybe my argument to you would be or suggestion sorry typical lawyer arguing no my kind suggestion might be to connect with existing organization and ask them what they think they're doing to help build an earth-centered system um, because I think in the past, a lot of our wonderful environmental organizations have been consumed with stopping the bad stuff. Um, what's important is that we build, we build the good stuff, we build alternatives, we build a better way to go forward. And I guess the other thing I'd like to mention is that the New Economy Network Australia, uh, Nina, um, Nat and I um, have given talks there before. Um, it's arisen out of the need to 
say to the large scale industrialized world, two things, we have to care for country, we have to care for the living ecosystems that, upon which we depend, um, but we have to do it in such a way that still supports with compassion other human beings. So I think um, trying to think of just transitions away from um, extractivism and away from mining and towards caring for the earth at whatever, whatever works in your local area, those conversations can be very tricky but important to have. So sometimes in Australia, rights of nature isn't the concept to come in with, to lead with, if you're dealing with people who are frightened for the future. Um, sometimes a new economy conversation opens up different alternatives for having a livelihood whilst still caring for country. So there's a lot of different ways to think about the same issue. Um, I don't know if that's answering the question, but I think there's a lot of positive things we can latch onto in a time of change and transition that we're seeing today. Thank you, Michelle. Um, and, and Carlos, what would your advice be? You obviously um, been innovating in, in organizing around this um, in, in different ways for decades now. What, what um, advice would you give to people wanting to support this? I think the most important thing is to be more educated, to be more informed of what it really means uh, to defend and promote the rights of nature. And once you're really informed, and if you become motivated, you will find a way to plug in. And I, I get visitors here from the US universities, and they, they always ask that question, what, what can we do? And I always say, start in your community, start in your, in your university, what's going on there? How can you make that world better? And try to incorporate the rights of nature right where you are, start where you are. It's, the change happens, lasting change happens from the bottom up. I mean, it's great to have it in the, in the uh, constitution but people on the ground have to understand it and have to support it. And the way you do that is just by becoming more educated yourself and more personal, personally involved. So that's where you start. And then you build up from the bottom up always. Great. Thank you, Carlos. And um, sorry to leave you to last, Liz, no pressure. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you have any thoughts that you'd like to share about the best way for um, people to support the rights of nature movement as a whole? Or what would, what would your personal advice be? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I was probably, yeah, just having some personal thoughts. Um, um, sort of um, not triggered, that's not the right word, but it's propelled by some of what Michelle has been saying and actually feeling a little bit downhearted actually, because I feel like, oh yeah, we've just been kind of swimming around in international waters and we're not focused on Australia and we're not engaging other groups enough and we're not, we're not, we're not. And and I feel like maybe that's um, that's probably what a lot of people do feel um, in this space. It's, it's like, where do I where do I sort of let you know find something to latch onto and start swimming to you know and I guess in some ways my my thought would be to not you know to try not to get discouraged by the fact that um, I mean we we are the environmental movement in particular is is very much it has been an atomized space um, the activist movement people borrowing away on their little issues um, it's been like that for decades. The movement to coming together needs to happen, and um, but 
you know, we're not there yet. It's it's like we we all still are quite atomized, and um, a lot of it's around the time and the energy that's needed to network. Um, you know, I'd love to be having more discussions with Ayla. It's just finding the time and the the right spaces. I'd love to be doing more with the new economy folks and the um, you know it, it, working with our down in Tasmania. We've been working. We did start a process last year of um, of talking with a local Palawa mob about um, some uh, rights for Kunanyi, which is a mountain that overlooks Hobart, <laughs> um, and that sort of got a bit derailed by sort of COVID and, and you know <laughs> the usual things. Um, but you know, it, it starting those discussions um, with like with local people, yeah, I just not getting discouraged. It's a really big you know, um, and, and helping each other, I think, encouraging each other on that path. We're all just sort of, you know, finding our way here. Mm. And can I just add, Liz, you should never feel down about focusing on the international. I mean, supporting mm. a good process, any good issue is so important. Um, and, you know, we always wish we could do more uh, to support the work that others are doing in other countries. We can we connect through the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature and ELGA and others. But I think the best advice is, Take, go where your heart takes you. You know, if you're a local activist, focus on the local. Um, and if you're someone who really desperately wants to focus on other issues, just go where your heart takes you and latch on and work hard and do the next good thing. There's so much that can be done. Um, and I guess I should have given Ayla a plug. You're very, very welcome to get in touch with us. We have our um, Australian Centre for the Earth Laws and Rights of Nature. Next year, we'll be having webinars um, on the rights of nature with local speakers and others. We always need volunteers. We're not a campaign sort of group. We don't sign things and have petitions. We do work that shows viable alternatives. Um, but you're welcome to become a member, join with us, uh, support Liz, um, you know, get involved. Uh, maybe think of Liz as the conduit to the amazing work and the, the groundbreaking work in Ecuador and Ayla as the group that stays connected over there, but is really, really grappling with the issues here in Australia. And we could use all the help we can get because we've got no funding. We just work because we're passionate. So. There's always something good that can be done. So plenty of opportunities for people to get involved and engage with the rights of nature movement as a whole. Thank you all for being a part of this panel. Um, it's really inspiring and um, very, very like the, it's the most exciting thing I've heard about for years, to be honest. I'm so, so um, engaged and passionate about all of this. Um, we'll pass over to, to Natalie Lowry now to, to close the event and um, I think she had a couple of comments to make and to just uh, tell us a little bit about what's coming up next. Yeah, hi to those who don't know me. Know me. Um, I'm sort of part of the working group around the Beyond um, uh, Mining Conference. Um, and I have had the great honour of working with Michelle with the Yes to Life No to Mining Network. Um, no Carlos's work well um, and I'm very close and passionate about what MRAG is doing with Liz and Naylan and Rebecca's also here. I guess one comment I want to make to that, you know, where do you put yourself? I think it's really important to understand that uh, the work that Liz and MRAG are doing and, and the work that, say, I do, which is focused in Papua New Guinea and we're looking we're not using the term rights of nature for the very reason that Michelle has sort of mentioned that the Melanesian context is its own context. And um, yeah, so it's more the river's right to life, I guess, that kind of thing. So the reason why some of us work in other countries is because Australia is complicit in the destruction that's happening through our corporations, 
through investors, through aid, through trade, et cetera. So we have to remember that these so-called borders, really the solidarity, the global solidarity is really important what we're doing. Um, and we just, yeah, I think to sort of Michelle, we just honor that there are different contexts and sometimes language has to shift because of that. Um, and as long as we can respect that, I think that there is a broader movement internationally around this and goes back to what both Michelle and Carlos talked about, which is, you know, education and shifting this extractive ideology, which just seems to be immersed in everything um, around us. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information on the Beyond Mining podcast series, Blockade iMark, and much, much more, please visit blockadeimark.com. Thanks for listening.